market. The S&P, the ISX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our very, very special, very, very Sunday, very, very mailbag edition. I'm Scott Phillips, and with me, as always, Dr. Ivan Mahati. How are you, Doc? I'm very good on a Sunday. Happy Sunday, mate. Happy Sunday. <laughs> I assume we'll be enjoying Sundays. Oh, well, I, I hope I'm going to be enjoying Sunday. Your plans? I, I, I have no plans. I like to have no plans on Sunday. Sunday's like my it. plan-free day. Oh, nice. I like it. Plan to be... Free. Uh, the, uh, no plan plan. The no plan plan. I like it. All right. Let's... <laughs> Let's get straight on. We do our special Mailbag Sunday edition almost every Sunday. And if you have questions, we want to hear from you. We're going to have, we're going to publish, we intend to publish right through the Christmas period and the New Year period. Good Lord willing, the creeks don't rise. But to do that, we want to get more questions, comments, and feedback from you, our listeners, so we know what you want us to talk about. And we probably will pre record some of them. So if you want a question answered over the next couple of weeks, now is a spectacularly good time to get it in the queue. We've got some space, so please do hit us up. Now, I shared this on Friday. I will share it again. What I forgot to mention is our email address, which is info at fool.com.au. Our wonderful member services, Fools, will make sure those questions find their way through the magic of the internet to Doc and I. You can hit us up, of course, on Twitter, on Instagram. The accounts are the same there, at Anirban Mahanti, Twitter only, or at TMF Scott P on both Twitter and Insta. And at the Motley Fool AU again on both Twitter and Insta. And on Facebook, Scott Phillips Money is my account, and the Motley Fool Australia is the corporate account. If you have any questions, please pause the podcast, give us an email, send us a social message, a direct message, a tweet, tag us, include our Twitter handles, all the cool things that people do, uh, and we will make sure we get onto the list of questions we're going to cover over the next few weeks. Jump to it. Now's your chance. All right, I'm going to assume you're back. You pause it, you come back. Fantastic, good. Okay, let's get on with it, mate. And the first one comes from an emailer. An emailer by the handle of JB. And JB says, Hi, Scott and Doc. Love the pod. Thank you, mate. A question for Doc. Sorry, Scott. <sighs> Fine, JB. I guess I'll ask you a question. If that's, you know. Anyway. He says, I recently opened a Charles Schwab account with a view to expanding my investing horizon. Excellent. Well done. I took a quick look at Doc's holdings. Ah, again, the inside running, I like it. And noticed he has a couple of companies I was researching, Fastly and Alteryx. Can, can I say, Doc, that um, I remember the good old days when people actually used, used to use real words for company names. <laughs> Fastly and Alteryx. My goodness, it's um, things, are, things are moving, aren't they? Maybe all the good words are taken, I'm not sure. But back in the good old days, there was General Electric and Woolworths and... Now there's Fastly and Alteryx. British anyway. Petroleum. And- exactly. All the good old names that meant something once upon a time. Twilio is my favorite, I think, at the moment. Now you have that Google. What does Twilio do? What does Google do? Well, Google was called the Google, like the number, large number, right? G-O-O-G-O-L. What has that large number got to do with yeah, search? Nothing. Anyway. Why didn't they call it search.com? They might as well have, right? They probably could have. <laughs> anyway. let's Like pets.com back in there. Let's move on. Anyway, um, that's not what JB wants to talk about. I've just taken this on a tangent. JB says, it looks as though Doc has a number of options on both calls and puts. And then he says something, JB, I completely agree with you, mate. This is my experience. Well, I'm not an options guy. And JB says, honestly, I can't really tell if he is bullish or bearish, but I'm keen to hear his thoughts on both companies if possible. Thank you both and keep up the great work. He finishes with one of my new favorite hashtags, hashtag Scott and Doc Fridays. I love that, JB. It's also hashtag Scott and Doc Sundays as well, which is today, but mate, loving it. Thank you for the question. Uh, help JB out, Doc. <laughs> Alteryx and Fastly, your view on those two businesses and maybe a really quick view on the options strategies if you are so inclined. 
Okay. Um, so Fastly is basically a, a content distribution company. What that basically means is it distributes uh, content that other people want right. and tries to push that content closer to the user. This does it do like it fastly? Is that the and, and it does it. It basically makes things fast. <laughs> so, um, so these are known as basically an or the the buzzword these days is this is basically an edge computing company, and the idea is right. that you want not just the content but application logic right. to also be as close as possible to the user. So you're minimizing uh, the, the time the signal goes up and down the wire. Yeah. So like a, the, the good example might be, suppose you want to book uh, a concert ticket. Well, those on, on in the good old days when you used to buy a <laughs> yeah, concert right. ticket. What are they? Uh, Dad, oh, Dad, what are concerts? <laughs> yeah. And when and what are those concerts? But, you know, think about any of those sort of things where yeah. you have to get get into a stadium and book a ticket. Uh, you want to you want to look, you know, you want to get seat number 115D yeah. and hundreds of people are looking at this thing. You want you want responsiveness. You want to be fast. Right. Yet you want the database to be all aligned. This stuff requires oh, yeah, okay. this stuff requires the application logic and the data and everything to sit closer to the user. Right. That's sort of the stuff that these guys. So they're not pure caching company as well, but they allow uh, application logic to rest. That's clever. Well, okay. So and you can push this logic further down, saying that well, if you wanted to do a lot more computing closer to the user, you'd use systems and services like this. So they, huh. you can think of it as a platform. Yeah. Um, so this company it does that. Um, However, they were making a lot of money from serving TikTok's videos, right? And then TikTok got into a little fight with the U.S. <laughs> like you know, now nowadays there's a lot of fight between governments, uh, <laughs> and 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 then often the res the result of the fight is some poor company. Uh, back uh, in the old days, when when those things were unusual. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so so there was a little fight between the U.S. government and some um, another country that resulted in uh, um, you know the U.S. government basically saying, well, TikTok can't be delivering TikTok can't be owned by some number of people, yeah. and therefore there was a lot of uncertainty around TikTok, and TikTok accounted for. Good, what fifteen percent of their revenue? Mm. So uh, they took took a beating um, there. There also another thing to remember: Fastly, Fastly has what's called a usage driven model. So the more you use, the more you pay. Okay, nice, yeah. Right, we which like is that. good. Well, yeah. which is good when things when the traffic is going <laughs> up, which is not yeah. that good when the traffic is going true, down. True, right. Okay. So, and for a small company, this creates a lot of volatility. Yeah. Um, so, TikTok's shares have been under sort of uh, this uh, tumultuous ride, largely because of what's going on with TikTok. What's mm. uh, sorry, fastly is because of TikTok and all the changes going on with COVID and things like that. Um, I, I still like the company. Um, I own shares. I have some options which i'll explain in a bit okay. um, but <laughs> like with all things all of these sort of companies what i say is you want to own enough mm -hmm. that makes a difference yep. but you don't want to own too much that it would hurt if things get cut by 60 yeah. percent okay. right so uh and, and largely because these companies should have plenty of upside if they execute to you know to their fullest right so okay. this you know this could be a mini amazon in many ways for wow. um in terms of it, you know, when i say amazon like mini say aws right okay. uh, like aws does things in the center which is the cloud. cloud computing yeah cloud, so this could be edge computing right it's so a cloud computing versus edge computing mm -hmm. if you think of that that's a huge market Right. So there's there's a there's a there's upside there's downside to so think about it mm -hmm. that way. That's mm -hmm. how I think about these companies, and that's how I tell other people to think about these companies. So Alteryx is really a a data science company. So basically, companies have a lot of data. You want to prep and uh, you want to prep. So the biggest problem with data is data is not mm -hmm. in 
the format or in the way that people can easily analyze. So that's one problem. So data prepping is is, is one of the big challenges. Mm-hmm. And then you want people who are not really necessarily trained skilled statisticians to be able to use the data to make sense of this data. That's what basically, th- these are the tools that Alteryx provides. Um, now, Alteryx has also had some hit because of COVID. Um, a lot of the companies that use, you know, airlines, for example, use Alteryx. So there's been uh, some pullback in its demand uh, from certain sectors. Right. And, and we, have, we have seen some of that come back as sort of the U.S. economy has opened back up and the European economy have opened back up. But again, you know, there's worry about with these, you know, shutdowns and so on and so forth, how they're going to be impacted. Mm-hmm. Um so again, this is a company I really actually like. I think its long-term opportunity is actually humongous. It's among sort of the growth sort of companies in sort of the SaaS sort of area. It's actually reasonably priced. Nice. Um, but there are these short-term challenges. <laughs> the other thing I'll point out is this is not a cloud company in the true yeah. sense of the word. So everything really ha- still happens on users' machines oh, interesting. Okay, yeah. or, or on-site. Yeah, right? Yeah, right. Okay. And that is a challenge in many ways. And, and it makes sense in the context that they're doing it, but it's a challenge because they could be disrupted by a cloud company, which mm. makes everything mm. happen on the cloud, right? Because the data typically would sit more and more on the cloud. Something to keep in mind, they are working on, on delivering a cloud solution. Mm. Um, mm. Um, again, I like I hold a stock uh, or, or hold shares in this this company as well, and I have uh, options and so on 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 these. So I'll like, explain what I do with my options. So nice. none of my options usually, or uh, let me make it clear, <laughs> typically most of my options positions are bullish. I I rarely. In other words, u- you're using options to make money when the shares go up. Yeah, or make money when the shares go up. Mm-hmm. Now he has seen put options. It would usually say something like, "I'm short." Uh, I would say it'll be short all tricks with a with a certain strike price, mm-hmm. um, and what that really means is, I am happy to buy the shares mm-hmm. at that given price mm-hmm. at on that date, mm-hmm. um, if the share price was below that. So, for example, I have a um, short. January 2020, $220 put on Alteryx. What it says is if the share price is below 120 mm-hmm. in January 2022, mm-hmm. I'm happy to buy the shares at that price. So normally when you say short, people are thinking you want the shares to go down, but because you're short a put, yeah. which is a negative option in, in some sense, not, the, the yeah. words aren't, don't, don't, if your options trade out there, ignore what I'm saying, but effectively for the rest of us, uh, a put is a negative thing. So to being short, a put is a double negative. In other words, you're effectively bullish looking yeah. to take advantage of that. Right. And what happens typically is I get paid some premium to buy this, buy, to, to write the put or to mm-hmm. be acting mm-hmm. as someone who's willing to buy the shares at that price right. at that time. Yes. Uh, and, and that effectively reduces my buy price if I ever get assigned those shares, right? right? So I might have been paid $20 for this, writing this put. Effectively, my buy price is then like $100. So effectively, I have a much cheaper price to buy nice. if it such happens. If it, happens. Now, um, if it keeps going up, though, you don't get a chance to buy them at Then all. I don't get it, which is why I own the, the shares. Right. Now, on this particular case for Alteryx, I've also got some calls. And the reason I've got these calls is when, sometimes what happens is when the markets, I've got, I'm long January 2023, $1.65 calls on Alteryx. And what that says is I am happy to buy and I'm, I want to buy shares at $1.65. Uh, as my price yes. in 2023. Yes. Now, if the shares are $300 at that time, yes. I could still buy at 65 
for which <laughs> for which I have already paid some money. Right, right, right. right. And and this is really just a leveraged bet, yes. basically saying that I think that the company is going to do well, and I want to make a leveraged upside yes. on it. Uh, and I usually do these leveraged upsides only when I feel that there has been a very strong negative reaction in price, mm-hmm. or the price has just fallen way below that it should have fallen. Uh, that's when I would do these things. Um, mm-hmm. And sometimes they work out. Sometimes they're not, they don't. Just like any other investment. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, effectively, I, I'm quite bullish on Altrix. And this, I have similar sort of puts on, uh, short puts on Fastly. Again, there was a there was a point in time when there was a strong negative reaction to the share price with certain if, certain events. Uh, and in, in my mind, it appeared that this is a little bit of an overreaction. And therefore, if I'm willing mm-hmm. to wait out, mm-hmm. um, I either I'm going to make some money or I'm going to get shares at a cheaper price. And, and those look like a good idea to me. So that, yeah, mm-hmm. so that's how I use the options. Nice. I think it's um, so. So lots of detail there, fools. If you're if you're an options investor, then get stuck into that stuff. Um, it, it's it's really worth just thinking about the way these play out, what the upsides and the downsides are, because there is no free lunch there. Um, there is some great potential upside in Doc's case, for example. Um, that that opportunity at the shares are three hundred bucks, you get to buy them at sixty. That's great. If the shares are at forty bucks at that point, you wouldn't exercise the option. You would have already paid for the right to do it, but you choose not to. So you've kind of given that money away. And again, I'm not saying it's a bad thing to do at all. I just want our, you know, leverage upside sounds attractive. And so everyone's sitting there going, hey, I, should, I want that too. I want that. I'll buy, I'll, I'll take a leverage upside on Woolies or I'll take a leverage upside on, you know, on Commonwealth Bank. And they still could work out, by the way. I'm just trying to make the, the, the just the broader point that you have to really know what you're doing with options. Um, they are, I'll say riskier investments, mate, because the, the leverage is riskier. And also oh, yeah. you can potentially put money aside. If you buy shares and they go down, you've still got something left. If you're paying to to for a right to do something you never use, it's literally 100% loss at that, at that, absolutely. At that point. Absolutely. Yeah, so there, yeah, are, yeah. there are reasons why you should absolutely think about it. Now, Doc's an absolute options guru. He does a great job with this stuff. Uh, we have thought from time to time about doing some sort of options service in Australia. It's really hard because these aren't the, the companies available, generally speaking, to do that or the sorts of businesses that – tend to actually benefit from that they tend to be fair to say doc faster growing companies the way you you use most of your options yeah so you i mean a couple of things that you need you need faster growing companies um you and you need liquidity right yeah. and yeah, and we run points. out of liquidity very quickly uh once you're outside of say the asx 200 right yeah. and and so we get into really small companies which where the options were you know are going to be highly liquid so yeah, if nice. there are options so i mean there are lots of issues like that yeah. there you go jb and other this is a huge masterclass in options and also uh an explanation of a couple of companies that doc likes a lot that are high, a bit higher risk but certainly have just fantastically large potential markets and that's exactly the sort of company docs look for both in the us and here at home with extreme opportunities and i'll tell you about that in a little bit of time before we do that here's the question we got from to say who doc doesn't oh chris here we go Hi, Scott and Doc. Always enjoy the show, but right now I'm a very cranky fool. Oh, dear, what have we done? I don't know if I get riled up, except perhaps when my favorite red and green football team lose. Oh, Chris, that's always exciting for me. If your bunnies lose, I'm a Rooster supporter. Anyway, but I am now, but I am now, and it's all about super. Here we go. Last week, I was, <laughs> I was building my guns in the gym, catching up on one of your previous episodes. I was a few weeks behind, so maybe I should get to the gym more often. Mate, no criticism from me there. You're responding to a question about salary sacrificing in a super and whether more exciting options existed for the writer. I wanted to share my experience, especially in light of all the recent stories about delaying the legislated super increase and your recent rant on the high horse. He says, hopefully he's now back from a spell. You know what it might be? It might be. I work in the education sector, Chris says. School teachers receive a comfortable but not exorbitant salary. I certainly know that. Not long after I commenced work, superannuation began. 
At first, my salary was low and my super was only 3%. So like all young people, I paid absolutely no attention to it whatsoever. I was lucky, however, that my super went into an industry fund and for the life of me, I cannot understand the government's hostility towards industry funds, which clearly outperform retail funds. I, um, I have some thoughts on that, Chris. I might add those at the end. Super eventually rose to 6 then 9%. Sometime in my 30s, I was convinced to commence salary sacrifice. At first, only 50 bucks a fortnight. I did not miss the money, and gradually over the years, I increased the amounts to $100 a fortnight, then more, until about eight years ago, I sacrificed the maximum amount allowable under the cap. Good work. I only made one other proactive decision, and that was to move from the default fund option to a more aggressive option, which includes Australian and overseas shares. While cleaning up during COVID, I came across some of my old statements. Here you go. After the 2008 GFC, my balance fell to $96,000. Today, despite the impact of COVID in March, my balance is over $600,000. This includes several years out of the workforce when I travelled the world and did not contribute to super. I expect to work for another 10 years at least, and so I can reasonably expect this amount to increase significantly. I have other investments, but super is my favourite boring investment. I don't want to appear smug and cannot take any credit for this investment. A great system was created and I have benefited from forced inactivity on my part. I have no doubt that had I not been forced to save, I would have nowhere near this amount and had I been allowed to access super for other reasons, I probably would have done so. But it was just left to grow. For the life of me, I cannot understand why the government did not just lend people 20 grand to be paid back when they retire from their super balance, similar to a hex debt, rather than allow them to reduce their balances as they did early in the year. I also can't understand the government's suspicion towards a system that clearly works and will prevent workers such as myself needing to rely on the pension when I finally do retire. The argument that business can't afford a 0.5% increase per year over the next two and a half years is disingenuous. If businesses can't afford that amount, they have far bigger problems to worry about. Both myself and others have already been negatively impacted by the delay in raising the guarantee. It gets my goat up that the publicity machine against super is now cranking up. Super works. Hashtag hands off our super. Fool on. I don't know that needs much more in the way of uh, explanation. Doc, I will say that uh, I have my concerns and, and th- suspicions about uh, the current government's issues with industry funds that I think have more to do with the fact that there are union bosses on the board than it does to the actual product itself and probably some lobbying from the very, very well-financed finance industry is probably a decent part of it. And Chris, I can't agree with you more, mate. There were a million different options they could have done other than getting people to take 20 grand out of their super, which will probably, in most cases, never ever be repaid and will cost those workers hundreds of thousands of dollars in retirement. Mate, thank you for the story. Um, If you're out there and you're a younger person, and you're not sure about super, whether you should contribute or whatever, remember Chris's story. After 28, 20, 2008 GFC, the balance fell to 96000 Today, back to 600000 and probably a whole lot more, including contributions by the time Chris retires. So if you take nothing else from Chris's comment, uh, you can have your own views on the, the value or otherwise of the government policy, but certainly, please, please, please do what you can to maximize your super. You'll be Your future self will thank you for it, I'm absolutely sure, and Chris is certainly a, a very, very good example of that. Doc, do you have any, any thoughts on Chris's comments? No, I really have no thoughts on that. Stand alone pretty well, don't they? All right, another one from the email mailbag. Last one from email before I get to the socials. This one comes from Rob. Hi, Scott and Doc. Thanks for answering my question on the podcast last month. You're very welcome. I found it very insightful and helpful, just like all of your weekly podcasts. See, Rob knows he's, if he says nice things about us, he's getting his question answered. I, I kid, I kid, but seriously. I have a question he says, though, regarding extreme opportunities. Luckily... We have the Extreme Opportunities Advisor here, Dr. Nibban Mahanti. So let's, get, let's ask him. Rob, uh, Rob asks, 
I subscribed to EO about six months ago and I'm finding it a little challenging. When each new recommendation comes out, the daily price jumps quite a lot. Most have moved 10 to 30% in a single day. The recommendation is to wait a week for it to drop and then buy at the prevailing price. The last few companies have typically continued to rise, some almost 50%. And as they have yet to drop in price, I haven't been able to purchase them. Overall, I'm still in the red with my EO portfolio. I'm wondering if the service is oversubscribed and what I'm supposed to do for the next six months with EO. Thanks in advance, Rob. That's a pretty good question, Doc. It's it's one that we have had before from other members. There's certainly some question about you know how to deal with the pop in share prices. And unfortunately for our our service and some of those members, um, you guys are are you know victims of of your own success. Now, Rob, I'm I'm sorry you're underwater with your EO membership. I will say, and Doc's. Um, not that he needs my support or or uh, or, or, or advice or, or, or comment, but the average return for Motley Full Extreme Opportunities as at this very minute, according to the scorecards, I think it's probably yesterday's close prices, the average EO rec is up 36%. The average market gain is 17.8%. So Doc and Kevin are doubling the market return. Um, now, there are some winners and some losers as there are with ShareAdvisor and other services. So sometimes you can be unlucky. Um, but remembering, of course, we take our prices from the close of that same trading day. So if there is a jump, we also bear the brunt of that and still the service is up more than double the market. So I will add that because I think it's important uh, context to to support Doc and Kevin and to you know put put the record right. Not that you're trying to not do the right thing, uh, Rob, of course, but just to just to be super clear. That being said, Doc, Rob's question is, is a good one. We do have a lot of members. They do, despite our best <laughs> efforts to tell them not to, they do tend to chase down these, these shares and pay, frankly, more than we think they should have to because of a little bit of ill-discipline, if I can say that kindly about our members. What would advice would you have? What thoughts would you give to Rob who's struggling to, to work out how to use EO given that circumstance? Yeah, Rob, I think I sympathize with that question situation. You know, like the last person um, who wants to see a pop is Kevin and I. <laughs> <laughs> That's like, right. In fact, the rec goes out and we have our um, trading accounts uh, open to just look at the price and we like, you know, we send it to it's up this much. We, and, you know, we are both disgusted that it's up. We, we don't want it up, largely because it's got to we get the price at the end of the day. If it's up 50%, we are starting yeah. off worse, 50% worse than we were. Um, it just you know, the, the more it's up, the harder it is to beat the market from that point, right? Totally. So uh, it, it's just a hard ask from that point. So all of that is true. Here, the fact is, uh, I'll first say the fact. The fact is, that most of the EO companies that we look at are really the small ones. Like, and so not, I'm not saying really tiny companies. We are looking at companies. Say, on on average, our company would be between. Somewhere between a hundred million dollar market cap to say five hundred million dollar market cap, and you know we tend to not go large. That occasionally mm-hmm. we do, again largely because we want liquidity. Uh, and um, you know, as we were talking yesterday after yesterday's pop uh, from our rec, we were saying, well, members are going to get a large cap next time <laughs> because <laughs> because they popped. You guys can't cap. be trusted. Yeah, yeah, you guys can't be trusted. You're going to get a large cap next time, <laughs> so that's what's going to happen next time. Most likely, we're going to give you a large cap. So it's uh, our way of saying, well, you know, uh, what, what can we do? So the problem is, uh, it's a real, it's a realistic problem. So if you're looking at a three hundred million dollar company which has which has got limited liquidity. Mm-hmm. What happens is we have a large number of people putting maybe small orders, but all of those orders arrive at the same time. Yeah. They arrive around the same time at midday when we release the, the rec. That alerts sellers that, well, mm. there are buyers and who are coming in in hordes. 
around the same time. And if the buyers then bid up the price, well, the sellers can also then see, well, the buyers can be made to bid up the price. Mm. And every seller wants a higher price. So there's a little bit of a, um, for the lack of a better explanation, supply-demand issue over the short term, mm. right? Mm. There's demand, and the supply needs to catch up, which is why we say use limit prices. Because if we use limit prices, and what happens is the, the supplier, in this case the sellers, know, well, these guys are basically saying we're going to pay this much and not more. If we want to sell, we're going to, we're going to come and meet them, right? Sometimes they might not meet us, uh, but other times they will, yeah. right? And and that's why we say you let some time let some time elapse for those yeah, limit yeah, prices yeah. to work out. If it doesn't work out, then oh, after a week, buy some anyways, right? Mm-hmm. Number one, th- the other thing we say is that never try to buy too much, right? And I'm not going to define how much is too much, but mm-hmm. we always mm-hmm. say buy just about enough that if it five bags from there is going to have a difference, and if it goes down to zero, it's not going to kill you. (laughs) That's the other thing to keep in mind. And the third thing I say is that all of these companies that go to our scorecard, we watch them, we have them part of our best buys now, every Mm -hmm. now and then, there'll be other points of time to add on to. Now, to uh, to Rob's question, so for example, not every, you know, we'd made a recommendation to Damstra. Damstra is actually down 30% from where, you know, our second recommendation is down 30% from when, from our second recommendation, which was in October, right? And it is down largely because, well, the price was bid up and the price has not come back <laughs> that much. And, and this sort of thing happens. It may appear it doesn't happen, but it does happen largely because small cap companies, if we release a recommendation, other people release recommendations, maybe some fundies are buying, the price goes up, then maybe some somebody's selling, the price goes down. The company's fundamentally, the company's the yeah, same company right. it was yeah, a couple of yeah, months ago yeah. or six months back. Nothing has fundamentally changed. Yeah. That's number one. Number two thing I'll tell any member listening is we make these recommendations with really a five-year type of horizon, right? So, you know, you could technically pay 20% more mm. and you could still come out ahead. Now, I said that every time you pay 20% more, you're just putting, putting you're basically losing 20%. So you shouldn't do that. But mm. if you're thinking five years out and it's going to, you know, triple or whatever, for, you know, from this price point, you are better off owning some than not owning, right? right. So, so I think you have to, with these sort of investments, rule out any of the, in the short term, if you're thinking that you know you've been a member for six months, you're going to make some money right away. Um, I think that would be the wrong f- time frame mm. to think about. If you made some money, I would say that's luck. If you didn't mm. make some money, I would say that's luck. Yeah. Um, we would not know the outcome of these investments really until we have let them, yeah. you know, play out. We have we need these companies to play out, and and that really takes time, right? Um, so that's the that's the idea. <laughs> Um, I think the best way to think of it is some of our, you know, earlier recommendations they've done well. You know, we've got some doubles, we've got some triples, mm-hmm. and and I think that's the way to think about them. You know, we all like quick gains, but quick gains <laughs> are generally quick gains are mostly luck, right? Right. Um, and 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 that's what uh, you know, unless something really happens and strategic things are happening, and yeah. that doesn't happen that often. So even then, the luck is even even the strategic things happen. If the market knew about it, but you already priced in, so it's, exactly. it's still it's still the, the the unexpected nature of it, or the fact that the market doesn't know it. You know, we 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 we, we by definition can have no insider knowledge. Otherwise, it would be illegal. And if we had that knowledge, we couldn't make the recommendation. So you guys are looking at the long term and saying, what does the future look like for this particular company? 
Yeah, and and most of the time, the thing that we are really like you know, when you think about valuations, the thing we are we are thinking is well, this company can compound its revenue growth or sales growth at a high rate for a long enough period of time. And the long we are saying is five. Markets typically thinking six months. Everybody wants <laughs> everybody wants to be rich in six months. Yep, yep. Fundies want to write their reports uh, yep, and yep. say that you know they're up this much uh, this month over last month and things like that. That's what the opportunities are. So it's really one has to take a, you know these companies take and be very patient because again. And these companies tend to be small, volatile. Um, you know, if, if somebody sells, you know, it's it small. It, it, one um, fund owner, for example, owner of the shares could sell, and that could move the market because you know there's going to be a substantial portion of number of shares relative liquidity available in these companies. So again, patience is really what we need. I like that. I'm only going to add one thing. So I'm going to endorse everything you said and just add the only thing worse than buying after a pop is not buying at all and see the share price go even higher. So I absolutely get the the, the sheer kind of emotional, I don't mean emotional as in a critical thing, but just the, the, our, our bodies, our brains, emotional response to these things, which is, oh, it's already up, I've missed the boat. Sometimes that's true. <laughs> but again, again, on the overall, even over the last six months, the, the EO scorecard is actually in positive territory uh, for those last six recommendations. Over the entire life of the service, as I said, more than doubled the ASX. The only thing worse than, than than suffering the pop and buying after a pop, excuse me, would have been for you know not buying at all. And again, we can't promise anything for the future, but just keep that in mind. It's tempting to want to say, "Well, I've missed it. I'm going to ignore it." Uh, that's understandable, but I think it's probably going to cost you money in the long term if that's the approach you take. So I'll throw that in. Yeah. Oh, one last thing, I would say also, you know, you want to buy enough of these, so you, you know you you can't just buy. That's you know, hugely important. That's very important because you know we we will have blowouts, things that don't yeah. work. We yeah. have blowouts on the scorecard yeah, yeah, yeah. for all to see, and and <laughs> I'm going to promise you that you're going to have more blowouts over. Yeah. You know, and not that you know I life love blowouts and things that don't work out. It's yeah. just that's the nature of this type of investing. So you want to have enough. You know. 15, 20, 25 on enough enough of these uh, companies to sort of, you know, at least, you know, you'll have the, the things that don't work out, the losers, but you'll also then have increased your odds of actually picking up the winners, yes. which are going to wipe out the losses. Yep, good point. Value stocks. Market. Stock market. Index. Share market. This is Motley Fool Money. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right, let's move on to a question now from Michael. Hi, Scott. I'm just listening to your latest mailbag. Just wanted to add a point for your information with respect to offset versus redraw. I think this might have been two weeks ago. An offset account benefit would be if you moved out of your residence and want to convert it to an investment property, your latest loan balance can be fully converted to an investment loan and the interest on that balance will be tax deductible. And your money in the offset can just be used to pay for down payment of the next property. However, if you already paid down your loan, and redraw the money to pay for a down payment on your next property, the interest of the redraw is not deductible because the purpose of that redraw is not to fund an investment. He says, for example, if your home has a loan of balance of 500K and you have 300 in the offset and you decide to move to a new property, you would take the 300 in the offset and pay down payment on the new property. Your old property will still have a deductible interest on a $500,000 loan. But if you'd already paid into the loan and had a balance of 200,000, which is the 500 minus minus 300, and then you redraw the 300 as down payment, you, the loan goes up to 500, but only the $200 that remains, or $1,000 that remains, is tax deductible. I hope that's clear for everybody. So effectively, yeah, the higher the balance, if you make your property from owner-occupied to investment, it, it's the loan balance that you can convert. 
if there's anything already overpaid, you can't take that amount back out and pretend it's an investment loan because the purpose of withdrawing that amount wasn't for investment purposes. Whereas if the loan was already higher, it was sitting in an offset, the ATO doesn't look at that cash independently. Hope that makes sense. And that's a really good point, Michael. So there you go. Um, yeah, something to think about. All right, question from Nick. Uh, oh, this was this is a response. Cheers for fitting my question in on the potty, Scott. And for the record, I think your idea of the government investing 10K when a baby is born is genius. Nick, if you call me a genius, you're always going to have your question mentioned. As the compounding effect can do its work for the first 20 to 25-ish years when an individual is earning no or a very low salary. That's my baby bond idea, which I think is a real... I, I agree with you, Nick. I think I am a genius. No, well, he said my idea was a genius, but I'm, I'm running with it. All right. Uh, this one's from Aaron. Aaron says, I have a question for the mailbag. Good point. I've only started investing since I had spare time while working from home during COVID. Mate, you've used the time. Well, well done. And so a massive opportunity to enter the market whilst at a low. Good job. So far, I have diversified my portfolio with 19 ASX companies through $30,000 of capital, and I've seen gains of almost 30%. Good stuff. Some of this has been from reviewing and purchasing older Motley Fool Share Advisor recommendations like Virtus and Bapcor, as well as some of the newer ones. Yes, I'm a member, he says. Now, I'm at a stage where I think I should diversify my portfolio across different exchanges. And I'm looking at the Vanguard All World X Australia ETF that you have mentioned plenty on the podcast. I hope that doesn't mean I've overmentioned it, Doc, but if I have, my apologies. My question relates to what capital should be invested outside of the ASX to properly diversify myself across the different exchanges. Thanks and full on, Chris. Hashtag give up on Doc on the talk. I like that. These, these are hashtags are awesome. Give up on Doc on the talk. I think you're telling me to give up trying to get in there, or maybe you're telling him to give up and uh, actually get on the talk. I'm not sure. I'm not sure which way you're going with that one, Chris. I'll um, I'll assume you want me to keep going and Doc should give up his opposition and, and join, finally, TikTok with some foolish dance moves. You reckon that's what he means? Oh, I, I have no comments on TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Chris is saying, look, I built, a, I built a, a nice portfolio. I've done pretty well so far. Chris, well done. Mate, by the way, really good job. Aaron, not Chris. My apologies, Aaron. Aaron. Um, Aaron, my my, uh, my apologies. He's, he's done a really good start. He started exactly the right time. He's A, had some time. B, seen the opportunity, which is awesome. Hopefully, we've helped. Bought some good stocks. He's got 19. Now he's saying, you know what? I think it's time to spread the wings and go overseas. I think we both think that's a good idea. So how should he think about what capital gets invested outside the ASX to properly diversify himself across the different exchanges? What do you reckon? Well, you know, the, the, the answer to this it really varies from person to person, how you think about different things. Uh, um, so, you know, there's no one sort of one-size-fits-all solution for it. Uh, I'll you know, give what, you know what's funny? I'll just quickly, if, if we were most other organizations, we would give people an absolute answer because people love certainty, right? We would say, you know what? You need 45.8% of your portfolio invested in the US and 13.4% in Europe and and, we, and, we'd, and we'd be really solid and really clear and people would go, oh, that's great. They're giving me really good information. I'll go and do that. We're not those people. We're the sort of people who say, you know what? We want you to be empowered to make your own decisions and it's less absolute, but we think by doing that, giving you the information rather than an absolute answer, it'd actually be better for the individual. Yeah, well, we you know we, we like to speak um, what we think is going to be beneficial for people over the long term. Uh, of course, you know uh, you know we think that's our thinking yes. <laughs> uh, and our good thinking. It may not work out that way, but we sure hope it does. Um, so I, I'll, I'll throw I'll not answer the question as to what number, but I'll. 
throw some <laughs> stats data. Awesome. So the um, the Australian uh, market is roughly a little less than two percent of the world equity market. In other words, it's a relatively small equity mm-hmm. market mm-hmm. compared to the overall equity market of the world, right? So, so another way to think about this is if one only fishes uh, in a small pond, then you're going to catch small fish, relatively speaking, right? <laughs> I like it. So, um, so if you want to catch uh, a large tuna, you need to go where the tuna <laughs> is. <laughs> um, so that's another way to think about that. So I tell almost everyone that you should have you should invest directly uh, in the world's largest equity market, which is the American equity market. Um, so that that would be my mm-hmm. advice or suggestion, Ash, because again, if you want to uh, invest in some of the biggest businesses, businesses which have long runways, then mm. that's where you need to be. Mm. Um, so consider consider the fact the size. So that again, now I'm not saying that you should have invest only two percent of your um, of your total investments in um, in Australia, largely mm. because, again, you might have other considerations. For example, you might be uh, concerned about exchange rate. You might be concerned about, um, uh, you know, cost of investing overseas and things mm. like that. Those Many of those things have become easier over time. Um, so that's something to consider. And again, maybe if you want a lot of simplicity, then you can just consider ETFs, which are available right here on the ASX. Although, again, I think there, there is a lot of benefit to investing directly, which allows you basically choose uh, which the ETFs don't mm. allow you to uh, to choose. So that that be my suggestion. I invest, as I said, a lot overseas, largely mm. because, again, for the same reason that um, if the market, you know, I want to fish where the fish are, um, and and and. This is one of those things where you don't actually have to travel anywhere to fish. You can <laughs> you can actually sit on your computer and basically buy stuff mm-hmm. anywhere in the world. Uh, my thinking regarding investing is I want to buy the best companies I can for yep. my dollars for the best return possible, and I don't really care where they are. Uh, largely because, again, you know, you have to remember another thing mm-hmm. that people forget: investing is. Really investing in the secondary market. Mm. There is some. There is some f- flow of funds that are involved, but in the secondary market, the only person you're helping really by investing well is yourself, mm-hmm. right? Um, and you know, so I don't feel any compulsion that my dollars should go to the ASX. My dollars are going to basically go to that company, which is going to give me the best returns, and I don't really care where they are, mm-hmm. uh, because again, if I help myself, then eff- effectively that's the whole point of investing is that you're helping yourself. So, so that's how I I would think about it. So, nice. uh, in yeah, I would say uh, having a direct access to an overseas market brokerage uh, would be very useful. I think that's true. Doc, you, you certainly invest a lot in the US. I invest this amount in the US. I think probably these days, maybe 40% of my stocks are US stocks, about 60% odd are probably Australian, uh, particularly including super. Um, I look, uh, well, yeah, I also won't give you an absolute number, Aaron. Um, <laughs> what, I, what I will say is that I'm glad you're investing overseas. Um, I, can't, I I'm completely with Doc in terms of finding the best ideas you can find and be market agnostic. I think that's absolutely right. I will add one rider. And that rider is just to make sure you have sufficient diversification for your particular circumstance. So um, ironically, for 99% of people, we're saying 90.9.9% of people, we're saying you are way too concentrated in the ASX. Go somewhere else. Just give yourself that diversification. Um, That's true. I would actually say often, sometimes, only investing in the US is the same potential problem if you're not cautious or careful enough to be properly diversified. So um, when we think about diversification, I think about industry diversification. So which types of companies in what industries? Currency diversification. So 
some Australian adults, some US and others, uh, is I think is, is just smart, particularly if you can find the same investment options. If you can, they say diversification is the only free lunch in investing. And the reason is, if there's two companies, I can get, uh, I don't know, pick a numbers, right? If I can get 10% return from one Australian company and 10% return from a US company, in theory, you say, well, I could buy one, I could just buy one of them. But you're better off buying both because that diversification means if you're wrong, if something happens, if the circumstances change, you want to have that diversification. It is a free lunch literally because you're getting the same return, but you're getting to diversify on the way and therefore lower your risk. And that's sensible. So industry, currency, geography. Yeah, Again, if we have an Australian recession and the rest of the world doesn't go in a recession, or conversely, if the Yanks have a recession and we don't, um, yeah, again, just simply being diversified if the returns are that are available are similar is just a, a super smart thing to do. So be mindful of that. Um, when it comes to currency, lastly, think about your timeframes. If you have to access your capital at some point for a given purpose, and it could be anything, um, the, the the share prices themselves are always volatile enough, right? We look over the last 12 months, if you'd have, if you'd have said in you know, January 1, 2020, I need to get my money out in the next three or four months, well, guess what? That was right in the middle of the of the COVID crisis. We always would say, don't have any cash in the market you need in the next three years, probably even three to five, but certainly three years for exactly that reason. But on top of that, if you're bringing back money from the US, you might get a great share price, but a terrible exchange rate. And so again, your overseas money, your overseas investments, in my view, that are invested in a different currency should be longer in terms of your expectation when you can redeem them. So you have the choice of redeeming them at an attractive share price and an attractive currency. So you're not giving up some of your gains. If you've got to bring the money back and all of a sudden the dollar goes from 70 US cents to a dollar US and you've got to bring money back then, you're effectively taking a 50% haircut on the process and that's not great uh, for your portfolio. So yeah, again, the, the longer the time frame you have, the more money you can and should invest in overseas markets. In terms of exchanges, just very quickly to your last question, I am the same as Doc. I think individual investing, if you do it well, gives you the chance to beat the market. But at the very, very least, if you're only invested in the ASX, if you only want an ASX account, uh, then something like using those ETFs is, is a smart way to go. Um, and again, the amount you invest in each probably is appropriate for your circumstances. What I would say is almost always, with the exception of Doc, um, most investors invest way too much on the ASX and way too little overseas. So whatever you think you should invest overseas, there's a decent chance it may not be enough. And think about that. Australia is 2% of the world's equity markets. To imagine we might have, as Doc says, as a, as a, as a small pond, to imagine we might have a decent smattering of big fish is, is really unlikely. So um, I wouldn't say it's 98% US and 2% Australia necessarily for individuals, but something close to 50-50 would make a, a really impressive and attractive and appropriate start, I think, to your investing diversification. Any more on that, Doc? I have nothing to add. A great comment from Rob. This is more a comment than a question, but well worth sharing. Hey, Scott, 12 months to the day, I called the bank back to get a better rate, or I should say, hashtag, get a better rate again, and got another 0.34% reduction. Result, exclamation mark. That is awesome, Rob. Well done, mate. So look, again, Rob's called twice in 12 months. He saved money last year, called back again, saved another third of 1% for nothing, for a phone call. If you're not getting a better rate, please go and do it. Anyway, back to Rob. I've been doing dollar cost averaging, just ETFs so far. And he lists some. There's some Australian, some NASDAQ, some Asia, and one disappointing one. I still have a healthy return in five months, which is satisfying considering the fact I started with zero in July and added a grand a fortnight. Well done, mate. Individual stocks will be my New Year's resolution. Your and Doc's podcast has been inspiring. Thanks and full on, Rob. Thank you, Rob. That's very kind, mate. Your thoughts on that, Doc? Oh, I think he's being super kind. <laughs> All right. Uh, some, more, some more positive feedback from Chris. Uh, great recent episodes, Scott and Doc, and I certainly agree with your view on short selling. 
Thanks for investing your time in these podcasts. Wish I knew some folks in Australia I could refer to your service. Well, we uh, we, we wish you did too, Chris. Make some Australian friends, mate. And, uh, tell them to check out Motley for Money. All right. Here's a question from Travis. Let's make sure it was a question or a comment. We've got a few comments, which is awesome. Thank you to those who've sent us the comments. Travis says, Hi, Scott and Doc. Thanks for the excellent podcast. The probability of learning something new by listening is the same as the sun rising every day. That's pretty cool. Very happy, Travis. That is really, really nice. Thanks, Travis. Hmm. All right, Travis says, I agree with comments made on previous podcasts that ASX 200 stocks are probably not the best place to put your money for recurring growth. I also agree that super is a great way due to reduce tax to build wealth. However, without moving your super or product that gives more control, an SMSF or something like net wealth, then isn't your money going to be invested in the ASX 200 by default? Do the tax benefits outweigh the possible reduced performance from the 200? I'm thinking about moving my super into something that gives me more control. Full on and thanks, Travis. Doc, your thoughts? Uh, Travis, I mean, some of that is, is correct. Some of that is, uh, is, is, well, I'd say the ballpark characterization is actually accurate. A lot of that money lands up going to um, ASX 200 companies largely because they are larger, they're more liquid, therefore they can absorb, uh, you know, super funds. Yep. And, you know, one of the, you know, a twisted logic has have made this point before. I don't want to see more money actually flowing into super for exactly that reason. <laughs> I don't want to see um, many of these companies actually become more overvalued because there's just a simple law of demand and supply. Yeah. These are small companies, you know, like, I mean, you know, in, on a global scale, many of these companies are actually small. Mm. And then you have more dollars chasing them. Basically, their 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 price expands until something gives. Um so that, that that's that's aside. However, I think you can, and I, you've already mentioned net wealth as an example. There are uh, tools available, options available to investors to choose how they uh, how they decide to invest. The thing is that most people take the default option, right? Yeah. And default if the default option is like forty percent uh, Australian shares, forty percent uh, overseas shares, and twenty percent I don't know real estate. Mm. That effectively means a disproportionate amount of funds go to the ASX. And exactly as I have mentioned before, the ASX is a small market. Mm. You have disproportionate amount of funds uh, and we have a large uh, pension pool chasing uh, a small market. I, I think, to me, that's a big, actually, problem that is, you know, a lot of problems that happen, it's, they are not immediately apparent, but mm. they become mm. apparent over time. This is another one of those problems where we have money chasing, I think, the wrong things uh, because of the way things are designed. So it's a good system that is actually, over time, I think, doing us a, some sort of disfavor. Uh, mm. That's actually my opinion. I don't have any, uh, you know, again, this is just how I see it. Um, so, yeah, you're right to point it out. Um, I don't have a solution for it. You can make mm-hmm. an SMSF and you could just decide to invest how you want to invest. Um, and and you have more uh, control that way. But if you do an SMSF, then you have more costs um, and uh, regulatory oversight. Because of the regulatory oversight, you'll have more costs. So is it worthwhile or not? That is a very individual question for people to answer. So you, right? Um, yeah, that's my thought. I, again, um, 
and yeah, I still have those comments about. Uh, I'll just I'll just clarify one thing. So the ASX two hundred. When I say when I say ASX two hundred, I mean of them as as in aggregate as a group. Mm. It doesn't mean that every ASX two hundred company is like uh, is, is a not. There are absolutely yeah. ASX two hundred companies that are going to grow at an above average rate. The index is going to change over time. Mm-hmm. Those those things happen. I, I mentioned Afterpay as an example of an innovator uh, from here, which has taken uh, taken the world by storm. Right. It's it's part of that ASX one hundred group. Right, but it's a smaller component of it. But you know, may, may, if you went back five years, it was not even a component at that time. So I think those sort of natural uh, selection processes happen. Uh, but as an, as an aggregate, I, I do think mm-hmm. that the ASX 200 has some challenges or some solid challenges. Nice, I completely agree with Doc, uh, with the exception, not with the exception, but with the addition that I reckon, Travis, that this is one of those situations where I really wouldn't let perfect be the enemy of good. Um, so there are better ways to do it. I completely agree. But for most people listening, maybe for yourself, maybe not, you need to decide for yourself. I wouldn't let that push you away from putting money in super. We mentioned uh, the story earlier from, who was it? Was it Chris? Um, who was you know, telling us about his superannuation journey. Now, could he have had even more if he'd done something different? Probably. But to his own point, you know, he didn't have to do anything with it. It was boring. It was left alone. He just kept adding to it. It did its own thing. And he's going to retire with probably seven figures. And so... I think there's a bit of both there, right? And this is why I say don't let perfect be the enemy of good. Make sure you don't, you know, steal defeat from the jaws of victory uh, by uh, by trying to be too clever with this one. So again, you may be capable of it and prepared to it and you should do it if that's true. But for many people, most people, maybe not even many people, most people listening, certainly most people in Australia should just leave the default alone, let it do its thing and retire with a lot, maybe not as much as they could, but certainly better than if they'd done nothing or if they if they'd made a mistake or, or, or mucked it up, right? So sometimes boring is beautiful. Sometimes good is good enough. Um, rather than rather than desperately trying to get perfect and maybe increasing risk or or the chance something might go wrong. So let me say that first. Second thing I'd say is for what it's worth, you can choose even within super an investment option that allows you to at least decide where you want some of that money to go. Now, just as I was, as Doc was talking, I looked up the Australian super. Now, I like them. Uh, we have our default super with them. I have no relationship. We have no relationship with them other than as our customers. Um, it's our default fund for our staff. Many of our staff have SMSFs and stuff, but as a default, that's our first call. Now, I looked at their high growth investment option. If you're with Australian super and chose high growth, at the moment, 28% of that fund is allocated to Australian shares but 42% to international shares, 6% to private equity, and so on and so forth down the list. So in terms of, are you exposed to the ASX 200? Yes. I don't even know if they'd followed the 200, but it's probably pretty close and the Australian market is weighted that way anyway. So about a quarter of the money in a high growth fund with Australian super is allocated towards Australian shares, but 72% is not. And so to some degree, I would think about just, you know, again, could you do it better if you invested all of it in individual shares yourself? Probably, yes. You could also do worse, by the way, if you pick the wrong shares. So we want to be careful that people are, you know, absolutely managing their own finance and doing the right thing, but also managing to make sure you don't you know, do worse while you try to do better. Um, so just, just for what it's worth, you know, almost three quarters of that particular high growth mixed option is not in Australian shares. And, and I would, wouldn't want people to sort of feel like they need to do something different just to chase the extra couple of percentage points of return when you can get a very, very good return over time, I expect, with something like this. 42% is in international shares, as I said. So you know, it's almost one and a half to one international to Australian. And Doc and I have said many times, um, that's probably a, a nice a nice component, a nice, nice allocation. So I wouldn't rush away from a default super option, uh, sorry, default super fund, but I would absolutely, within your super fund, choose the option, the pre-mixed option they have. And you could even, in some cases, 
allocate. So I know with um, I don't have a, 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 a industry fund anymore. My wife has one with one of her employers because she has to for uh, annoying reasons. Uh, we'd much rather be in the SMSF, but such is life. Uh, and you can actually choose even across that, not even the pre-mixed options, but you can choose X percent Australian shares, X percent national shares. Literally make up your own pre-mixed option um, without taking a default one from the super fund. So there are different ways of doing it uh, that all make some degree of sense and depending on your comfort and interest and whatever. You can do that without having to manage it yourself through an SMSF or with net wealth. SMSFs are great. I have one. Doc has one um, for the right people with the right interest and the right, you know, um, you know, uh, inclination. They can be great, but don't worry about it. And to your point, as I said, last point, I I reckon <laughs> taking the tax deduction is well and truly worth more uh, than worrying about whether or not you might possibly do better than the two hundred by making life much more complex. So for the average person, uh, the average listener, the average Australian. I think a default fund in a high growth option is about as much as most people would need to do to retire very, very comfortably. Any more rejoinder on that one, mate? So, I think that's good. Let's go from a question from Lachlan. And I like this one. I have a question. Can you help? Yes, we can, Lachlan. Does a dividend reinvestment plan factor in franking credits, i.e., is the dividend that's reinvested the same as the one that's paid out with a franking credit? I'm trying to see the advantages of a DRP apart from saving on the brokerage fees. So there's kind of two questions there, mate. There's one about the franking credits specifically and there's one about the advantages of a dividend reinvestment plan. Do you want me to start or do you want to kick off? Well, you know what? I actually don't know the answer to this question, especially what happens to a franking credit. (laughs) So I'll let you answer. I'm assuming you know the answer. I can cover this one, absolutely. Mm. So in Australia, I think probably around the world, DRPs operate roughly the same, but let's, let's be very specific about Australia here. From a tax perspective... The ATO assumes you got the cash and then chose to reinvest that money in new shares. The fact you never actually see the cash is immaterial from a tax perspective. So if I get a $1 dividend, that will bring with it, I don't know, 41 cents in franking credits, generally speaking. So let's assume it's fully franked. Um, so when I get my $1.41, I get my dollar of dividends, my $1.41, uh, sorry, 41 cents of franking credits. The ATO says you got a benefit of $1.41 worth of income and you have a tax credit of 41 cents as part of that. That's what they do. Whether or not you reinvest that using a DRP, is a, they don't care at all. <laughs> they really don't care less. All they'll do is tax you on the dividend you were entitled to and you effectively received, even though you then chose to never see that money, but simply buy new shares as a result. So every tax implication that applies to cash also applies to a DRP. Now, you've got to be a little bit careful with that, by the way, because you may well have a tax bill and no cash to pay that bill with if you've reinvested all the dividends or automatically. So you've got to make sure you've got a little bit of cash on the sidelines to pay that tax bill if one is due. So exactly the same, whether or not you receive the cash or new shares, the franken credits you receive are the same. You'll get that benefit to your tax return. But so, remember, is the tax bill. <laughs> you've got to pay You've got to pay that as well. So you get the benefit of the franken credit, but you have to pay the bill. The advantage of DRPs, mate, do you have a view on that or do you want me to keep going? Um, no, you go. Keep going. All right, I'll keep going. So I'm sure you'll have some, hopefully some applause at the end. Um, the advantage of a DRP are largely one of automation and one of a little bit of saving. So I'm not a massive, well, here's the thing, a bit like my last answer. I wouldn't let perfect be the enemy of good. I think DRPs are wonderful for people who just don't want to have to think about it. If you are someone who might otherwise spend that cash or you don't really want to think all the time about which shares to buy and you kind of like the portfolio you've got. If you just want company to do its thing, you don't have to worry about it. DRPs are great. They're a great automated process 
They just let it happen automatically for you, like super, like other, you know, it's like cash in the bank, right? When you get when you get the interest, they don't send you a check with the interest bill, they just add it to your bank account balance. Uh, it just it just sits there and compounds. Now, interest on bank account balances is probably if you're under if you're under 25, you probably don't know what interest is on bank account balances, but trust me, in the old days it happened. Um, so look, it's great for that purpose. I do think though, for the interested involved uh, inclined in- investor, it is not the best way to invest. And here's why. The first thing, so back to the advantages quickly, sorry, actually. The first thing you save on brokerage, yes. Some companies also do issue you those shares at a discount. So some if you are 3%, 5% discount to the prevailing share price, if the shares are currently trading at 10 bucks, you might get the new shares for 9.50. And so there's, there's some immediate profit there for the, for the person who gets those um, reinvested dividends. All of that said, I think the biggest, so those are the advantages. The biggest concern I have with them is if you think about a portfolio, let's say let's say you've got a portfolio of 25 companies and all of them have a DRP, a dividend reinvestment plan. The odds that the, you know, you're, getting, you're getting more dividends on your, dividend reinvested, sorry, on your favorite company of, the, of that list. Let's say you own Doc's uh, Dental Supplies and that's your favorite ever company. It's super cheap. It's got great growth ahead of it. And so you love the fact your dividends are being reinvested because you expect the shares to be worth tenfold in five years. So that's great. You get more value, more exposure. You're also going to get your new shares of your 25th most favorite company that you know, you're not really sure whether you even still want. It's been lagging a little bit. The business isn't going great. You're going to give it a couple more months and just see and maybe you might sell the shares. Now, if that's a circumstance, getting new shares through a dividend reinvestment plan is not the best option. You should be probably saying, you know what, I'll take that money in cash, thank you very much, and I'll buy more shares of Doc's Dental Supplies, or I'll go and find another company that I like even more and buy that one. So DRP is super great for automated investing, have no problem with them whatsoever. Just remember that often for the investor who wants to maximize their returns, you should want the cash, because then you can put that cash in the best possible place based on your analysis, and it's almost never going to be equally spread amongst your current portfolio the way a DRP might work. Doc, any more thoughts on DRPs? I have nothing to add. You've covered everything. Oh, all right. Well, you're going... Oh, I was going to make you go next, actually. But there's a question on mon, uh, modern monetary theory. I'm going to hold that one over because I'm not sure whether you want to answer that one. I'm going to answer it in a second, but I will throw you another question, Doc. So you, you have a... Uh, your turn at the microphone so I can have a drink and have a quick break. Uh, a question from Tim. Hello, good sir, he says. i got another question for the pod, if I could. Is the ASX 200 market benchmark everyone uses a market cap weighted or an equal weighted index. If it's market cap, wouldn't an equal weight index be a better way of measuring growth in the market? Cheers, Tim. So, Doc, is the ASX 200 market weighted or equal weighted? It's absolutely. By the way, what does that mean? And then wouldn't equal weight be better? Well, it's market weighted because, I mean, effectively, larger companies have a larger weight uh, or influence on, on the return of um, an ASX 200 index. Would... Um, would would an equal weight be better? Yeah, effectively, if you believe that the smaller companies are likely to grow uh, faster, then you know the effect, the fact that they're they have a smaller weight, and until they get re- rebalanced, you know their weight doesn't go up. Um, they have a lower impact on the returns of the index, right? So, in in the case of equal weight, however, if your small company you know, is is doing well, that has actually a larger impact on on the returns that are being measured. So, yeah, I mean, all else being equal, I would, I would, I would say I'd place higher odds on the equal weight 200 doing better than the market cap weighted 200 doing better. Um, yeah, so effectively that's, that's, that's how I think about it. But, you know, most market 
indices are um, market cap weighted. Mm. Most of them, except for Dow Jones, which has a weird way of doing things. <laughs> Price weighted. It's yeah. very strange. I actually agree with Doc. I, th- I think um, I think equal weighted would actually do better, generally speaking. I mean, not all the time, and, and it's going to be different for different periods of time, right? When large caps are in favour, when miners do well in Australia, for example, um, the the uh, market cap, well, you always have different performances. But I completely agree. If you think about the, the I mean, it's, it's the Australian market's less obvious because the big banks are still bigger than most other things. But if you look at the US, right? If you think, imagine, imagine if you bought an equal weighted S and P five hundred. 10 years ago. I haven't done the numbers actually. It might be different, but my guess is the rise of Amazon, Google, they've gone from not much to a lot. Uh, and so that 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 sheer growth, if you'd have an equal weight of, of General Motors and Amazon rather than what would have been at the time, uh, maybe not General Motors, General Electric, it would have been at some point 10 to 1 waiting uh, from GE to Amazon. So you, you didn't get more Amazon until it got bigger. If you'd have equal weight of those two from day one, I dare say you would have done much better. So I, w- I, would, I would agree with Doc. I think equal weight's probably going to do better. It's also it's just appropriate though that it is market get weighted, right? Because you're, you're trying to measure the index, and again, separate index from investment option, right? The index is supposed to just tell us what's happened on the ASX today, or over a month, or a week, or a year. You want to know how much more money has been generated by investors, and that is measured by the amount of capital in total on the market, which by definition is market cap weighted. So we we kind of make it index, make it easy to manage, but we could equally say the value of the ASX has gone from seven hundred twenty billion dollars to eight hundred billion dollars this year. That's effectively what the index does. It just puts it in a in an index form rather than an absolute form. And so it just measures the total dollar value of the market as measured by, say, the 200, for example. And that's I think it's it's super appropriate that we use market cap for market performance, but as an investment option, I think Doc's right. I think equal weight would make a whole lot of sense. Any more on that, mate? No, sir. Good answer. Thank you. A question from Jonathan on mon- modern monetary theory. How close to that are you, Doc? <laughs> Not much. <laughs> so here's Jonathan's question. I have a question regarding modern monetary theory, which I discovered online recently while I was researching fiscal and monetary policy. MMTers, modern monetary theory proponents, MMTers claim that printing money won't cause hyperinflation due to the demand for the local currency to pay tax and others, which I'm not so convinced. But the historical fact that for the past decade after the GFC, all the major countries, including the EU and US and Japan, went brrrr. He says BRRR, which I think is like the money printing machine going. I thought they're really cold, but I'm assuming it's money printing. Uh, see, I bring my own sound effects, Doc. I'm worth my money. But I only have got minor inflation and even some deflation. Does that mean monetary? Uh, sorry, does that mean money printing is not a bad thing at all? And MMT has a valid point? Or is it just another propaganda theory to gather public support on unaccountable government spending? I'm a long time listener and first time questioner. I would love to hear your guys' thoughts on MMT if that does not deviate too much from the podcast topic. Well, we don't mind a tangent. So, uh, Jonathan, you're, already, you're always pretty safe to ask almost anything. Uh, Doc, do you want to have a go and a thought on this or you don't really have a thought? Well, well, well I, I don't know. Like, I mean, this is a very complex uh, topic. Really is. Um, so, I, I mean, at a very high level, right, somebody prints the money. Effectively, that money has to come from somewhere. Effectively, the money is borrowed, right? Mm-hmm. Um so you're borrowing essentially from the future mm-hmm. and you have to pay it back. If if you could just print whatever you wanted, we could just print all the money, then effectively, if everybody did the same thing, then mm. we're all back to the same spot. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Um, I, I don't know. I, I'll let you, this is too esoteric <laughs> for more of my taste. Look, I'm not going to spend, I'm not going to spend too much time on it because it is a bit outside our general wheelhouse and, and probably, uh, I don't want to bore too many, uh, too many listeners with many of this. MMT, I I personally believe is one of those things that's great in theory, but doesn't pass the the practice test. 
Um, if you had a particular, so the idea is basically rather than using interest rates to control um, uh, to control prices to control uh, money, I should say, and using government debt, the critics say you just ignore debt. Government can have whatever money it wants, just prints more money because it's got the the RBA can print as much money as it wants. So it's got it's got money, and you just use taxes to control inflation. And that's kind of that's, that's actually a really seductive idea because it's just a different arm of government to do the same thing. Now I have to say, for that purpose, I'm not entirely sure if that's true that it's any different from what we're currently doing. It's it's just another it's another version of the same sort of lever, right? Because whether you create more money or you put taxes up or, vi- or taxes down, sorry, or vice versa, you create less money or put taxes up, it's having the same impact. Um, you can argue from a social policy perspective, it impacts different people differently. That might be some validity there. Uh, that is, if you put interest rates up or down, for example, the whole economy gets hit, including house prices. If government simply prints more money and pays money to know, welfare recipients or defence, uh, then it would go to specific areas rather than a whole economy impact of, of interest rates, which it makes perfect sense. The problem with MMT, in my view, and I've, I've not had this... Um, I'm no expert, by the way. I've not had this sufficiently answered, but... I think it works perfectly well if you don't have to worry about trading with other countries because the value of the currency is irrelevant inside the country. Part of the MMT idea is, well, we don't have to worry about, uh, you know, government debt uh, and we don't have to worry about inflation. We don't have to worry. We do it all with taxes. That makes perfect sense as long as it's a closed economy. Once you have to start trading with someone, once Americans have to buy our, uh, I don't know, American tourists have to come here, China's buy our iron ore, Europe buys our wheat, the currency level matters. And, MMT in a single currency closed economy could actually work. I'm not sure it should, but it could. Um, but outside that, once you have to deal with someone else, inflation matters and the, and the value of the currency matters because you've got to buy Australian dollars to buy Australian wheat and we've got to buy US dollars to buy US made, I don't know, iPhones or something. Um, so the, there is the the externalities, as the economists call them, is the big issue I've got with how this could possibly work. I have to say the other one just generally, and I'm... I'm not a died in the wool conservative norm. I died in the wool progressive. I kind of try and be pragmatic somewhere in between. I'm just not so sure there's enough upside potential to throw out the whole economic textbook and start again. I mean, that's a that is a really really aggressive decision to make. And I'm not you know I'm not saying you shouldn't try new things, but you can't kind of edge your way into this. You you can't invent a new thing and have it slowly take market share. Right? Either you do MM2 or you don't. And I've got to say, I just I find the idea of us throwing out the textbook starting again. It might be better, so I'm not. I'm not discounting that. And as I said, I'm not trying to be arch conservative. You know, status quo always should win. But man, if we get it wrong, could you imagine the economic disaster and trying to get back from that somehow to some sort of normality? It would. Uh, I I think I'm right. It would plunge us into a multi-year recession at the very, very least, where we all went, "What the hell just happened? How do we get out of this?" Um, you can imagine a scenario where production stopped, spending stopped. Um, you know, investment idea, investment decisions just simply stop because it was just too hard to think about, and no one wants to commit money if you don't know what's going on. I, I just, I, I think it'd be an enormous own. Even if it eventually worked, the transition would be so incredibly economically painful. I'm not sure it'd be worth doing. Anyway, that's my thoughts on MMT, but I'm no expert and remain open to being convinced that it's a better idea. Doc Ashim, you don't want to jump in? I don't really want to jump in. <laughs> How about I give you a tax question instead? <laughs> hey, Scott and Doc, a question for the podcast. This is from Damien, by the way. How do I record share splits like the one Pushpay just did from a tax and return perspective? 
Oh, that, that, that's, I like easy questions. <laughs> this is the easier one. Well, it's very simple. So you, let's say that, you know, we, I bought shares that are, uh, were priced at $10, mm-hmm. right? Um, those good shares then became $20, and then the company decided it's going to split it into, say, you know, five. Right. So each of those $20 shares now are worth $4. But effectively, then my buy price also is mm-hmm. divided by five so right. ten dollars is effectively two right. right so you you just divide the total number of shares that or the split factor mm-hmm. you you just divide your initial buy price yep. or the then price by the number of shares it was split into mm-hmm. and and then you have effectively your capital gains or loss calculation perfect there you go i hope that helps i mean pretty straightforward just divide the numbers up by the by the split here's a question from dan get scott and doc just wondering on your thoughts on damstra I know the fool likes it, but the price seems to go south constantly without any major news. Dan Kane, he finishes with hashtag Doc for Treasurer. There you go, mate. You got one vote. Finally, I've got somebody <laughs> voting for me. Great. Doc for Treasurer. There you go. Dan's going to be your new uh, campaign manager. Mate Damstra, I think it's one you follow. He's worried about the price going south constantly without any major news. What's going on? Do you like it? Well, really, really uh, I wish I knew what was going on, why the price was going south, because uh, then I could ask it to go north. Um, but the price doesn't work that way. Unfortunately, it doesn't nice listen to help. Well, I, yeah, I'd, I'd I w- appreciate that. Yeah, I would really appreciate if the prices <laughs> just went the way I told yeah, them to go. Yeah. You know, go around. I really don't know. Like, look, I, as I, I think I alluded to this on Friday's podcast. Like, sometimes what happens is the a particular small cap might mm. become the flavor of the month or the period. A lot of people like it. You know, it gets um, talked about in the media. It gets attention. Mm. People mm. buy it. You know, then other people join. Um, there's a bit of a, you know, euphoria, for the lack of a better word, around it. Maybe that's what happened. Right. And then after people say, oh, maybe it's not that good. Oh, maybe I want to buy the next hot stock and then people move on to the next, next thing, right? And... So you get a lot of volatility with small caps. That's, I think, what's going on with uh, Damstra. I think the results have been good. Um, the the periodic reports that have released have been good. Um, so I, I can't think of anything specific as to what what has happened, but I just put that down to normal volatility in small cap land. It's a funny one, Doc. You know, I, I just looked at a quick 12-month price chart just for the fun of it, and it's it's... I think it's, you know, your you point of volatility is really important to remember because if you look at this and someone said, hey, guess what? Damstra's up 25% over 12 months. You go, oh, that's amazing. And if you look at the, the bottom of the market in March and you said, hey, guess what? Damstra's almost tripled in, in nine months. You go, wow, that's amazing. And then if you bought it at the very peak and you wouldn't know that time, of course, but in hindsight, it was $2.30. It's now down by about, well, I'll call it 40% among friends. Is that roughly close? Close enough. You say, oh, man, the stock keeps going down. What's going on? The thing is, they're all true. All those three statements are entirely true. The stock is up 25%, it's tripled, and it's also down 40%. And it's just a question of what price you buy it for. And I think that's that's important because we can sometimes, and I don't really particularly know about this circumstance, um, uh, that Dan's buy price or, or time, but it's one of those things where, you know, how how is the share price doing is so, of course, it's about what, what we buy it for. No one wants to pay too much for the shares. I absolutely get that. But it's also worth remembering that over time, if the business is as good or, or, or as bad as we think it might be, and you want to buy the shares because it's worth more in future. Really important to ignore the volatility that's in those share prices and look to the look to the future. Yes, it sucks if you bought it two thirty and it's a dollar thirty six now. And you're thinking, man, that really hurts. I hate that. I wish that wasn't true. I, I get it, um, but also remember it is you know triple the price of eight months ago, uh, and very much a story of you know the long term 
thesis is not going to play out in six or nine months. The long-term thesis plays out over a number of years. Sometimes, by the way, there's things to see differently, but this is not a story of a failing company that only goes down. It's just a you know that that volatility is certainly at play. As I was going to say, the, I, I think the, the with share prices, I think you have to assume that there's going to be um, a lot of you know roller coaster up and down, mm. and and with small caps, it it really um, you know gets exempli- you know mm-hmm. uh, amplified. But yeah. but you know I want to actually I wrote about this um, and I wrote about this you not like this Scott I wrote about this with reference to Apple but I'll use Apple as an example because it's one of the largest companies on the mm. planet right mm. and over a twenty year period it would surprise you how many times this company mm. share price has gotten has fallen forty percent below right. its most recent high yeah, yeah. right there are six instances at least in the right? last twenty years where the share price for Apple has fallen by forty percent yeah right. During the GFC, the share price of Apple had fallen by sixty <laughs> percent, and as recently as maybe like you know a couple, couple of years back, it was almost thirty five percent down. Right. So it's volatility is actually more common than we actually think That's it is, yeah. and we. And and often we always anchor the price we bought, right? Because that's what really matters. Because <laughs> I bought it at two dollars. That's yeah. what really matters, and yeah. this, you know that's absolutely true. That's yeah, exactly. It's, fair, it's absolutely yeah. fair. Yeah. But because you're going to look at it from that two dollar point, but we just have to realize that maybe that was that recent high, mm. and mm. and it's now down fifty percent from that recent high. And this thing, and what all I'm saying is this thing happens. This is not a guarantee that it's going to go back up, but it yeah. it does happen. It happens actually. It's going to happen again mm-hmm. on its path. Mm-hmm. If it is, if it's going to go up, like say fourfold, it's going to happen again. And the the problem is that if we knew that it's going to happen, <laughs> yeah, exactly right. when, yeah, yeah. we, we would just that. get out before that exactly, and then exactly. get back in at the yeah, bottom. But the yeah. problem is we don't know when it's going to happen, right? Yeah. We don't know when yeah. those forty percent have uh, drops, thirty percent drops, fifty percent drops are going to happen. So that's yeah. the that's the problem. And and then we get paid more in this in this in the share market largely for that mm-hmm. reason mm-hmm. because if we knew it was going to happen in a straight line, everybody mm-hmm. would be investing. If everybody was investing, uh, nobody would make excess returns. Really, correct, correct. Um, because I'm contractually bound to mention Berkshire every time we mention Apple, I will mention that I think it's happened to Berkshire Hathaway three times in maybe its entire history or certainly in more recent history. Three times it's fallen my ball to 50% in a given time. And again, those two companies have had astonishing long-term returns. There were times when maximum pessimism set in, right? And I think that's that's a really good point, as Doc says. Um, now, Damn, it's probably not going to be Apple or Berkshire. Hopefully, it is for, for those who bought the stock. Um, but but the same the same volatility type issues tend to tend to apply, and they are sort of more prevalent doc, for smaller companies. As you as you started by saying, and so yeah, we're about those. I mean, if big companies like those two can have those sort of drops with massively loyal followings and massively well covered, you know, no one can no one can blame momentum or or you know uh, uh, you know sort of um, lack of knowledge for those just those pessimism, right? Exactly, just it's all, it's pessimism, all, it's all, it's all, right? And I mean, if you look at the cash flows of those businesses, yep. you would think that they should not be <laughs> right. like I, I mean, you know, you you look at Berkshire's. Yeah. Yeah. Cash flows, and you say, "Well, this company should mm-hmm. be the least volatile of the lot." I mean, right, it's generating right, right. gushes of cash, yeah. but it is still volatile. Got billions of dollars uh, in the books, and exactly yeah, the same thing. It, it's just and and in damn strap by comparison, it's only a two hundred fifty million dollar market cap company, yeah. right? So, I mean, yeah. these things tend right. to be volatile. How, how much how much cash has Apple got? How many billion? Uh, probably like what hundred billion plus. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, well actually, no, no, no. That's the net cash. Right, or if right, you just right. look at total cash and 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 they've got debt, yep. it's like probably two hundred fifty billion plus. So, the company immediately they probably didn't have hundred billion at the time but if a company like Apple with that with 100 billion dollars just in cash not 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 total market cap just cash alone can fall by 40% three times 
a business whose entire market cap is $250 million is going to be massively more volatile. So it's a reminder. Mate, we're done. We're finished for this Sunday. A reminder, as I said, please do hit us up with some questions. Uh, if you want some stuff to listen to over the Christmas break, the best thing you can do is to help us do that, give you that content by giving us some great questions and comments like the ones we had today. Thank you to everyone who took the time to send us a question. Thank you to those who sent it, took the time to send us a comment as well, by the way. Um, we had one, one question which I did get, we didn't get to, we'll get to next week. It does start with, it seems like you need to say something nice to get a question answered on your podcast. Um, I, just for the, for the record, we do say it in jest. We will answer all, like, if, you, if you're going to be a mongrel about it, we probably won't answer your question, but we're not looking for just praise. We're just having a bit of fun with that. But, you know, if you want to, feel free to. We've got egos, as I said before, so uh, feel free, but you don't you don't need to actually uh, give us praise to get your question answered. If you, if you hate us, that's okay too. Um, before we go, I want you to go and join Motley Fool Extreme Opportunities. Doc and Kevin work really hard, as you've heard today and on Friday, to bring our members the best possible high growth ASX stocks they can find. They do carry some more risk, as we like to regularly say, so our members are prepared, but the returns have been nothing short of excellent, and I fully expect that will continue to be the case in the future. If you agree and you want to join them, and I think you should, go to fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast. That's EO for Extreme Opportunities. The guys are trying to find every single month the best possible companies they can find to help you grow your portfolio, particularly in that small cap space, often in tech. If you're someone who likes the idea of that stuff, and you should, uh, these guys are the gurus, and I feel really good about them running our Motley Fool Extreme Opportunities service. So go and join them, fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast. Now, my usual ending, because that does wrap us up. And before we go, don't forget you can and should subscribe to the Triple M Motley Full Money podcast through iTunes, your favorite Android podcast app, or on both OSs, you can grab Podcast One. We're a Podcast One partner. We like those guys. They look after us. And if you like what we're doing, please leave us a review on whatever podcast channel you choose. Uh, give us some stars. Leave us a review. Please be kind if you could. Uh, we'd certainly appreciate it. It helps other people find the podcast as well. This is free. We hope to educate, amuse, and enrich, which is our oldest tagline at The Motley Fool. Still one of my favorites. And we're doing that hopefully in a accessible, easy way. So if you've got some people in your life who you think might benefit from our gibberish, please send them our way if you would. And again, that review helps people you don't know also find us because it, lets, it uh, lets people highlight us in the podcast apps and all that kind of stuff. Speaking of which, you can get a dose of foolishness straight to your inbox as well as some marketing and email from me every now and again by going to fool.com.au forward slash That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back on Friday with another dose of Foolish Insight. Until then, full on. Full on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.